HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to Food Without Borders, a show about food, culture, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you are listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today, in studio, my guest is Mayuk Sen. He is a staff writer at Vice Munchies, previously Food 52. His work elevates overlooked immigrant stories and elucidates the connections between food, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and racial inequality. Mayuk, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, as I already mentioned awkwardly, I've, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a fan of your work. I appreciate that. Thank <laughs> you so much. No, you really are. You're, um, I mean, I really am. You um, have sort of come on to the food writing scene with guns blazing, I guess, in the last... I don't know. How long have you been writing for about food specifically? I, um, so I joined Food 52 in, let's see, September 2016. So about a year and a half or so, not even. So Yeah, and I feel like your voice has actually changed the landscape of what food writing is you that, know, since, since you've started that contributing. That means a lot. Thank you. I actually really mean that sincerely because I think it's sort of highlighted a lot of, um, kind of like I said in the intro, like a lot of you know, immigrant stories and the types of food history and food culture that wasn't, people weren't really talking about before. Um, and, you know, to Food 52's credit for, for bringing you on and giving yeah. you a, a platform to share your voice, which is like just so stunning and powerful. So I'm so happy to be sitting across from you today. Thank you. Um, and you, you write a lot about your, your heritage and your ancestors. And I'd love to hear just a little bit about, you know, what your background is and where you came from and, and what your, your upbringing was like. 
Totally. So I am I'm 26 years old, and I was born and raised in suburban New Jersey. Uh, I was born in Edison, which is saturated with a lot of Indian immigrants, like my parents. And then I grew up in North Brunswick, and there's no reason why anyone should know what North Brunswick is, but it's also saturated with a lot of Indian immigrants. And so I knew what North Brunswick is, but I didn't know it had a lot of Im- Indian immigrants. That is fascinating that you knew what North Brunswick was. That's amazing. Um, yeah. I feel like a lot of people don't. I don't know. I mean, it's not. It's Jersey. Like, it's not the other side of the world. That's true. It, it yeah. sort of feels like it is. Well, yeah. yeah. So I, um, my parents were both from the Indian state of West Bengal. They had an arranged marriage, and that's how they met. You know, they met on the day of their wedding. And they came from India to the States in the early 1980s, right after getting married. And I have an older sister who's nine years older than me, and then there's me. And so I grew up speaking Bengali along with English, along with eating a lot of Bengali food traditionally, etc. So I'm very much a child of two worlds or whatever. Yeah. And you've written about that quite a bit. I mean, you wrote a piece um, kind of early on in your food writing career called What's in a Name, Shingara, Samosa, and Semantics, Mm -hmm. correct? Correct. And you wrote about um, just sort of understanding the nuances as, you know, a first-generation American child of immigrants, like the revelation of understanding that there's this food called Shingara and how it's much like a samosa, but there are subtle differences. And just understanding, you know, what it's like to be kind of straddling many worlds at one time in your upbringing, like being an American, trying to assimilate, being the the child of immigrants, being Bengali. But yeah, why don't I let you speak to it? Like how how you sort of um, touched upon like being both Indian and Bengali and American at the same time. Yeah, totally. So I I should probably take a step back and say that a Shingara is, like you said, very similar to what a lot of Americans know as a samosa. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a little different. It's usually... uh, purely just vegetables um and basically it is very much a bengali staple dish um and it i think i grew up eating shingaras in mostly bengali spaces you know whether that was like i guess gatherings like durga puja which is kind of this annual celebration that um honors the goddess durga and i could never quite reconcile i think my bengali identity and certain Bengali traditions that I'd grown up following with my uh, Indian peers, because I, I went to a high school that was very much, you know, it had a lot of Indians. It was probably, it was probably majority Indian, you know, not even majority white, which is crazy. But a lot of those Indians were not Bengali like me. You know, they followed other North Indian traditions um, from other states of India. And as a result, I felt as though they spoke a certain language that literally cultural language rather that I could not speak as a Bengali. And I think that a lot of, you know, those years as a teenager and then also even in college, you know, when I was in Indian spaces, I could not quite reconcile my Bengali identity and the traditions that I knew with a lot of what my Indian peers were talking about. And it fed this sense of displacement within me on regarding, you know, how Indian am I? Because I, I mean, I remember so many things like my so-called best friend from high school who was Indian, he told me, oh, you're not really Indian. You don't do Bhangra. You don't do this, you know, all these things that are imagined as Indian within, I guess, the popular imaginary. Um, I did not subscribe to because I did not grow up following a lot of those things. And I think that Shingara was almost a, 
a perfect distillation of kind of the vocabulary that I had grown up speaking versus the vocabulary that a lot of other Indians around me had grown up speaking and kind of my sense of alienation around that. So, Which is, I mean, it's just such an interesting thing to, to hear you talk about because you're talking about this in the context of having grown up in the United States. And I think for the children of most immigrants, the struggle is that they're trying so hard to assimilate amongst other white people. And here you are, like, in New Jersey, you know, <laughs> the child of immigrant parents. And I would think that, you know, the um, the tension would be that you are trying to sort of um, be as American as possible and disassociate yourself from the country that your family left behind. And here you are trying to convince your Indian peers that you are, you know, as as Indian as they are. Right, exactly. And it puts me in this really odd position because then, like you said, the kind of solution to not being able to assimilate with, you know, this larger Indian population, quote unquote, is to assimilate with this white population. And Right. Was that part of the dynamic? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember, speaking of college, like my college boyfriend, I remember him accusing me of not really being Indian. You're basically white, you know? And I remember mm. that just like struck such a nerve within me because I, I I worried that, you know, he kind of got, I don't know, the uh, what, what's it called? Um, I guess he had kind of figured me out almost in that moment, you know? And kind of like this ruse that uh, finally had been uncovered. Well, it just sounds like what the struggle was is that, you know, you were, for some people you were too white, for some people you were too you weren't Indian enough or you weren't white enough. And the, and it seems like the thing that was really hard is that you were just never Bengali enough, you know, for yourself or maybe even for your family. Yeah. Like there was nowhere to sort of place that. Exactly. And I think that like, not to, uh, I don't know, wrap it up too simply or neatly, but I do think that actually being a food writer and kind of being able to analyze my Bengali identity through food has really helped me kind of sort myself out and place myself within this larger world, whether it's within this, my Indian identity or my American identity. Right. Um, that must feel really healthy. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Like your, your career has like sort of become your therapy. Absolutely. And to do so on a public platform is not stressful at all. <laughs> yeah. And you have written about something that you refer to as the myth of Indian food. And mm-hmm. there's, this is a quote from that piece that I referenced, um, the what's in a name, Shingara, Samosa and Semantics. And you wrote something, uh, well, I'll just read it. Simplification is what happens inevitably to a diaspora's food in transit. There's a dissonance between the realities of what we hunger for and what the world thinks we crave because we are so easily perceived as a monolith. And um, that's in context to what you talk about, the, what is the myth of Indian food. And I was saying to you before we started the show, you know, as a white person, you go to an Indian restaurant and you don't question it. You know, you expect to see the same dishes and it's like tikka masala, chana masala, naan, whatever. And yeah, absolutely. You are raised to think of Indians and Indian cuisine as a monolith um, because that's what you're literally served. Right. Uh, why don't you talk about what it was like from your perception to, to see that from through your lens? Totally. Um, well, I should probably, again, take a step back and Please explain do. what I grew up eating. So my mom cooked a lot or constantly pretty much. And what she did cook for us each night was 
dal, um, lentils, aka um, rice, some sort of protein, which was either chicken or fish, even though I'm allergic to fish, which is not very easy for my mother to deal with. <laughs> yeah. Um, and some sort of vegetable kind of curry type thing. And that was what I knew as Bengali cuisine. However, there was such a dissonance between what I had grown up eating at home and what an experience at an Indian restaurant was like, even Indian restaurants in New Jersey, which is a place that has so such a, is teeming with so many Indian immigrants, you know, there, a lot of the restaurants there kind of are, like you said, revolve around menus of chicken tikka masala and malai kofta and all these things that are kind of coded as Indian, even though they're really North Indian and they do not necessarily reflect, you know, my own Bengali identity or Bengali cuisine. And as a result, they don't reflect kind of the breadth and diversity of Indian cuisine because India is a very large country, as everyone knows, and it has many regions, many states, and many kinds of cuisines. Yet, a lot of that kind of regional specificity has not really bled into what is served in restaurants, you know. And I think when I began my career as a food writer, what I, you know, I had never really considered my myself like entering food writing as a profession at all. And so I figured that the first place for me to kind of, I don't know, start interrogating my place within this landscape was to just look inward and think about what did I grow up eating and what assumptions was that strewn with? And how do I articulate what those mean to someone who isn't me? You know? And um, I guess I realized that a lot of the food that I was eating when I was growing up just did not reflect what was served in restaurants and that's a problem and it it really reflects or I think links back to a lot of how I guess Indians are perceived within I don't know within the context of a white gaze yeah um what actually got you into food writing it's a funny story so <laughs> kind of it might not be that funny um but Kenzie Wilbur, who was then the managing editor of Food 52, she is wonderful. Um, she had contacted me. So I've been freelancing up until that point, And I had been writing mostly about film and television and culture, just broadly, never about food. Um, I'd been places like Vice and Pitchfork and The Fader, you know, things that were not food publications strictly. But she reached out to me because she was hiring a staff writer for, 50, for Food 52. Ugh. And um, she wanted someone who was not a food person, quote unquote. She wanted someone who could write ably about food adjacent culture topics. And, you know, I took the meeting because I was like, oh, this is curious. You know, maybe. Who, who knows? You know, I think it, I'd read Food 52 once. Um, and the more meetings I had, I was like, yeah, you know, I think that I could really see myself growing as a writer um, within this context and with this kind of support. And so that's what kind of brought me to Food 52. You know, I was hired under the pretense of kind of expanding their horizons because, you know, the history of Food 52 when it was founded almost a decade ago is that it had very much been a recipe driven site, very much community driven. And then it launched an e-commerce uh, arm in 2013 it had not really dabbled too extensively in culture. And so this was kind of them taking a leap. So I knew that there was a lot at stake because I think that it felt as though my hire was just a big leap for them institutionally, you know? Yeah, but did that feel like uh, a burden? Like, did you feel like the token brown person? Yes, in... Um, I, I will be completely honest. And I've been pretty open about that, I think. Um, you know, I am very grateful for 
my time at 52 and the support that I did get from people like Kenzie. But I think that um, it's, it's hard when you are tasked with, I don't know, this burden of kind of like representation for a site that is so not used to touching on topics that may even sort of brush on political things, you know, because I think that, you know, food is very unique in that it's such a community driven site that it takes its comment section very seriously um, so much that you get an email whenever someone comments on your post. And for someone who is writing about columbusing and appropriation and food, you know, that is a total minefield uh, to put it politely. You know, I would get, a lot of harassment, a lot of awful, awful negative comments, people impersonating me within the comment section. I mean, it was just really, really brutal sometimes, you know? And I think that it, it is hard day to day to kind of convince yourself to that your work means something and that it's kind of, you know, moving the needle in some necessary direction when you just have to deal with that day to day, you know? And in your inbox, you get this kind of awful, awful vitriol just spewed your way. I, I can't, I'm sure, but I mean, it must have been especially difficult because at least when you started writing and especially because of what you were writing about, you were like the only one doing that. So did you sort of feel like it was unfair that all of a sudden you were like plucked and put in this situation, like you didn't even want to be a food writer. And then all of a sudden you had to sort of like be the person to like weather this storm um, just it just must have felt really isolating. Yeah, it was isolating, especially just to be in a predominantly white office and be doing that, you yeah. know. Um, and I very rarely, if ever, felt nothing but support from, felt anything but support, rather, from Kenzie, my direct editor. She was so wonderful and nurturing and affirming. Um, but yeah, it was absolutely alienating, you know, to feel as though I was tasked with this thing and I was, you know... A, again, like I said, moving this company's needle in a certain direction that it needed to move, yet I was basically paying the price for that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, almost like you were being punished for it. Right. But I will say that it did feel really rewarding when I did get to write pieces that I really cared about and I saw impact a lot of people. And that's why I really mean, like, thank you when you say that my work, like, means a lot to you because Mm -hmm. that, that means a lot to me, you know, to know that, like, I feel there are some people who feel that I'm having an impact on this world because, it, again, it can be so demoralizing to just get that in your inbox every day. Yeah. Um, especially because you write about such personal content, you know, and like you really mine your own family's stories and your own experiences, you know, when you like what you said, you know, when you started writing about food, you were like, I don't know, I guess I'll just write about like what I know and what right. I was brought up with because it's not like you were a food critic or, you know, someone who had been thinking about this for a long time. Absolutely, yeah. So it's really intimate and really personal. Mm-hmm. And I think the first piece that I ever read that you wrote for Food 52 um, was about your experience drinking a turmeric latte for yeah. the first time. Yeah. And there's just the, the level of detail in that piece really struck me. Like you talk about even the, the pronunciation, mm-hmm. you, you pronounced the R and just like the person at the, the cafe who was like, oh, like, I, I don't know. They didn't even understand you. You know, like you obviously right. speak like perfect plain English, like you were born in this country. Mm-hmm. And just because you pronounced, I mean, just say it, turmeric. 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 Yeah. yeah they were yeah. like, no one had heard the R in that word before and they couldn't even understand what you were saying. Right. And like, literally, this is an ingredient that you were like born consuming. Right. Totally. Yeah. And within a very specific context, because the reason why I wanted to write that turmeric latte piece is because 
at first, and I write about this in that piece, uh, I had seen a lot of, I guess, writing about turmeric latte as this trend that it was being Columbus from India. And yet I knew that I was, you know, I had a family from India and yet this drink meant nothing to me. I mm-hmm. had never known that it existed, even in its Indian form, which is Haldidud, a.k.a. like turmeric milk, literally. And so I wanted to write about that because I think that the way in which that discourse kind of unfolded first, you know, the turmeric latte was being co-opted from a lot of North Indians as this wellness luxury product. And then it was, you know, the backlash was kind of like, no, this constitutes appropriation because this is Indian and it never got more regionally specific than that. And the kind of wedge that I wanted to, I guess, like enter in that conversation with was, Hey, I'm Indian too. Yet this drink does not mean anything to me. And this is how that, I guess, conversation reveals the way, the flawed ways in which we talk about Indian food, you know, and how we can't really reach, we haven't yet quite, like, gotten that regional specificity that I think, you know, we need to get to. And it's a perfect example, I mean, to talk about any sort of ethnic food and the way that white people have been having conversations when they think, um, they've discovered something for the first time because they've, I don't know, a- adapted it into a different form. And all of a sudden, turmeric lattes are like this new trend, but yet it's an ingredient that you have been familiar with your entire life. And it's not you know, necessarily meant to be served with milk. Absolutely. I mean, what does that even feel like to see people explain to you what this is? <laughs> it's extremely alienating and mm-hmm. odd and disorienting. I don't even know how else to describe it. You yeah. know, it's just very weird. And I love how you write about how disgusting it was it, when you it, drank it. It's, it's a truly repulsive drink. <laughs> I just have to say that. It, I would never drink it again, willingly. Like, I, that's what I don't understand. Dishing out capital that you could put elsewhere, you know, yeah. <laughs> just drinking that. Why? I don't get it. I don't get it, you know, but. Yeah, it's just, it's just like an interesting myth. I don't know. Have you had it? No, it doesn't sound good at all. Yes. I mean, why would I have a latte without coffee in it? Exactly. Yes. That's such good. a waste good. of a latte. Keep it that way. Don't drink it. <laughs> Although I, you know, I use turmeric as a seasoning when I cook a lot, but... That's totally fine. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back to keep talking with Mayuk Sen. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese. The farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satari's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
You're listening to Food Without Borders on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. I'm in studio today with my guest, Mayuk Sen. He's a food writer. He writes for Vice Munchies. And uh, we've been talking about his career thus far as a food writer and writing about kind of mining his um, personal experiences as the children of Bengali immigrants and how he's able to... um, look at the food culture and history of his family and use that and incorporate it into the type of stories that he writes. Um, a piece that you wrote recently was is about your great-grandmother? Yes, correct. Who became a widow at the age of 37. She was the mother of eight children when mm-hmm. she became a widow. Her husband was much, much older than her when she died. And it was sort of startling to read because... That happens to be my age. And to imagine becoming a widow and a mother of eight children at this point is, I mean, it's just, I can't even wrap my mind around it. But what was so fascinating about that piece is the ritual of um, what wind- what widows were meant to endure in um, where, West Bengal? Where West Bengal, West correct. Bengal. Yeah. Um, so not only do you have to suffer the loss of your husband, but it, it was like being punished for becoming a widow. She was no longer allowed to eat meat or mm-hmm. garlic or alliums and had to wear fish. Yeah. fish. yeah. Um, and so, you know, what became of that tradition was sort of like this new um, study in vegetarian cuisine, which I think a lot of people associate Indian and Bengali cuisine with anyway. And I had no idea that there, there was such a history and a legacy of suffering that was attached to it. Totally. So the reason why I wanted to write that piece was I had listened to this one Bengali food writer who's much older than I am. Her name is Chitritha Banerjee. And she had written a piece for Granta in 1995 about this very subject and her mother's own experience with losing her husband and kind of what she was forced to eat after that whole experience. And I had uh, heard Chitrita Banerjee speak about this at some sort of event. Uh, I don't even remember what it was. I think around April or May of last year. And I was really fascinated because I, I just called my mom right after that. And I said, I had no idea that Bengali widows were forbidden from eating meat or fish or alliums or anything like that after widowhood. Like, why didn't you ever tell me about this? You know, it was kind of this weird part of what felt like a personal history that was not revealed to me. And it was almost like, wow, how did I travel through life so far with, I don't know, not even questioning this or not even knowing about it, you know, this part of myself, really. Um, And so I was really interested in interrogating that. And I guess conveniently for narrative purposes, what happened was um, my father, who had had lung cancer for three and a half years, um, he he was admitted to the hospital in... May, I want to say, and then he passed away last June, and I was kind of, you know, working on this piece for a bit during that time, you know, kind of like anticipating grief and then experiencing experiencing it directly, you know, Mm, and um, it was really funny because that piece was supposed to come out the week that he ended up passing away, Mm. and um, we had to hold it, obviously, because I was on bereavement, you know, it was literally not working, you know, but... Um, it was interesting because I, those weeks prior, what I had been doing was asking my mom about her grandmother, aka my great grandmother, and what it was like to see her be widowed, and what she grew up knowing her grandma cooked for her, and what her grandma had taught her about cooking, and what her grandma had taught her to cook, and 
what I had grown up eating that was, you know, indirectly produced by this suffering, you know? And because I think that the whole thesis statement of that article really is that there are these unsung architects of Bengali cuisine who are so easily kind of written out of history or not really, you know, there's not really a spotlight on them because they're this huge subordinate class, you know? They're, they're literally widows who are punished, as you said, for, you know, this awful, completely misogynistic thought that they have eaten their husband. They're literally called husband eaters, you know, in Bengali. And that's completely absurd. And Bengali cuisine owes so much to these women who, you know, have suffered just to create, you know? It's so twisted and ironic and gross, you know? <laughs> and then also, like, beautiful. I still don't understand. I mean, why why is the perception of widows that they are at fault for their husband's death? You know, it's really antiquated. And I think that I tried to interrogate that a lot when I was just talking to my mom and also talking to people like Chitrita and other researchers and historians um, who were kind of interested in the subject. And I think that this whole practice just reaches back centuries, you know, and is founded in some deeply, deeply sexist and misogynistic, you know, um, beliefs about women and, you know, the kind of subservience that they should have to their husbands, you know, and I guess what kind of contract they sign uh, emotionally whenever they do marry their husbands, you know, but... Yeah, I mean, your great-grandmother was, I would like to think, like, very young when she was widowed. Absolutely. And to have to live the rest of her life in this permanent state of sacrifice. I mean, that's a, I mean, she lived till she was very old. Yeah, yeah. She lived until her 90s and it is completely backward, you know. And she never reintroduced any of those other foods to her diet. No, as far as we know. You know, there are rumors swirling around that, you know, oh, she had fish bones in her apartment, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um which would have been completely yeah, so fine. Yeah, she did. Yeah, exactly. Like, she totally deserves to eat that, She you should know? eat a steak. I mean, yeah. I don't even eat that, but, like, <laughs> totally. she deserves it. Absolutely. Yeah. And did you, like, when, oh, gosh, it's just so much to unpack, like, gr- writing about grief while experiencing grief and yeah. all of it being in your family at the same time. Did you feel like you wanted to adhere to a vegetarian diet in any way, like just for the sake of like understanding the ritual or feeling like there might be something sort of cathartic to channel the way your great grandmother processed her grief? Yeah, that's really such an interesting question because, well, first of all, I should say that my mom kind of right after my dad died, you know, she and I had both been anticipating it for a few years ever since his diagnosis. But right after she did die, what happened was she temporarily just she had this weird kind of dietary shift where she just didn't feel like eating meat or fish or anything you know all she had was vegetables really and that was so fascinating to me and the way that she explained it was I just don't feel like it you know I kind of get that because when you when you endure something really difficult you know you sort of just kind of lose your appetite a little bit like sometimes that's just like the natural thing absolutely yeah I don't know if it's that specific that you don't want like meat but you kind of just are like ugh. Right. I and don't want anything. Exactly. And when that kind of trauma also is kind of, I don't know, folded into generations or whatever, I oh, guess yeah, it can deep. totally inform that, you know? But um, it was interesting because I think one tightrope that I was really walk- walking when I wrote this piece was that I am a man, you know, and I cannot experience ever a woman's pain, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that that was really tough for me to kind of like access, you know, whatever my great grandmother and also my mother we're going through, you know, as women who had to 
live according to certain expectations that, you know, I would never have to face. I would never be in that kind of set of circumstances, you know. Um, that's I, I don't even think that I was in the headspace to, you know, consider uh, adopting a vegetarian diet. You know, I wish I had now in retrospect, now that you mentioned that, you know, but at okay. the same time, well, just because, you know, I think that, again, something felt very, not dangerous, that's a very dramatic word, um, but difficult about writing that piece because again i'm a man writing about a woman's experience you know and like it's it's very hard to write about that sincerely in a way that is really doing that woman's pain justice you know um and it feels nice i guess when or it feels comforting rather when i'm told that i did a good job of doing that you know but at the same time there's always going to be that gulf you know i'm not going to know what this woman went through or what my mom is going through, you know, right now and experiencing grief as a woman, you know, given what circumstances she grew up in, you know, so it's tough. How are you still and how did you then sort of reconcile your own grief and the own authentic emotion you were experiencing losing your father um, in the context of thinking about what your great grandmother went through? Hmm. Yeah, that's tough. I try to... Just that timing is so fascinating. It is really fascinating. I think that I had luckily been done with the bulk of that piece, you know, by the time my dad did die. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I'd added in a paragraph or so about my mother and her experience um, by the time that piece did go live, you know. But I wanted to separate those two experiences as mm -hmm. much as I could, you know, because... The last thing I want is this to be a piece about, you know, my male interpretation of this suffering, you know, because... I guess I meant more just internally, like the way that you sort of had to compare your what you were experiencing, just mm -hmm. the way you were feeling. And if you felt at any point that you had to sort of measure your own grief against hers. Yeah, I think so. I did because I, I had to realize again that, you know, I was a man losing his father, but... I'm living under a, in a completely different context than the one in which my great grandmother lived and also the one that my mom is living through right now, you know, and had grown up living through. I guess what I'm getting at is I hope that you didn't feel like you had to minimize what you were feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope so too. And I think that luckily I was, I had written so much of that piece before that I, um, you know, I didn't have to reckon with that too much. And I think that you know, when the time comes and when it feels appropriate, I will write at least one piece about what my dad ate and the food memories I have with him, you know, because there's so much there and there's so much to be written about my own grief and my relationship to food and how that may have changed or shifted since my dad died, you know? Um, and I don't know that I'm there yet. I'm, n I'm not really there yet in my grief to write about it publicly, you know? So yeah. it's tough. Well, I hope you do, too, because I think a lot of people would want to read that. Thank you. Um, I know when you started at Food 52, you, you wrote that you, it's founded, you said, it's founded in my own belief that food media has little place for a person like me, a brown man. And I was wondering if you still feel that way. It's tough. It really depends on the publication, I will say. You know, I do feel really supported and affirmed at Munchies, um, I think, in part because it is attached to this much larger media ecosystem um but i will say that you know that media ecosystem sorry being vice um versus food 52 you know is kind of like a standalone company and i think that it really depends on how much support 
certain publications give to voices and how little they fetishize those voices, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, I'm very wary of certain food media companies seeing diversity as a PR moment rather than a meaningful way to, I don't know, actually support and uh, lift up voices who have not traditionally been heard within food media, you know? Is, and is that, was that part of the reason why you left food 52? Yes, I think so. Yeah, honestly. Um, I think that part of it was just, I had reached this kind of ceiling on what I could write because I think that, like I said, the comments section was such an integral part of that site's DNA that, you know, I always had to write in anticipation of what someone could criticize me for, or not even criticize, just come at me baselessly for, you know? And yeah. Did that ever get easier? It didn't, you know? I tried to convince myself, it was almost like a Stockholm Syndrome type thing, yeah. where, you know, I was like, oh yeah, this is making me a better writer, because it's making me more careful, and it's making me question what assumptions I have about the audience I'm writing for. But mm-hmm. then I realized that there's a difference between being careful and being overly cautious. And I think that at the end of the day, what was happening was I was becoming a more cautious, timid writer who was at risk of losing his voice, quote unquote. You know? Yeah, you were editing yourself. And that's right. certainly not the point. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, my last feature for Food 52 was about Joyce Chen, who was the first woman of color to host her own cooking show uh, right after Julia Child had hosted hers. And it was fascinating because I had worked very hard on that piece. You know, I'd reported it out, et cetera. And... One of the comments, you know, a few days after I left was, oh, I enjoyed reading the information in this article. However, I really cringed when you called her a woman of color. We don't need that kind of language in today's America, etc. And oh, Fuck off. Exactly. And then um, there was just, you know, a bunch of comments underneath that that were like, yes, I agree, Betty, you know, like, and her name was literally Betty, you know, <laughs> um, like a perfect distillation of my time there, you know, and kind of what I had to deal with. Just a lot of people being like, oh, yes, I agree. Like, you know, Food 52 should have a better way of editing out that kind of language. You know, A race, whiter way. <laughs> yeah, race-baiting language. So it was called, and it was just completely absurd. And it was tough because there was no one up top who was kind of defending me and stepping in the comments section, you know. And that's when I realized that, you know, maybe it's not the best scenario to be writing for an audience that is always going to question you, you know, like how much can you change that audience's perceptions of, you know, race and food, for example, you know, and like it, Mm, it was very disappointing. disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I felt as though I, I really tried to move the needle there um, as much as I could within that year, you know, and to see kind of the comment section just evolve into that. And I think you did. I mean, I just want you to know, like, I really think you did. And it's always, it's always like the loudest voices, you know, that are going to be in the comment section. But, um, you know, I think your impact actually speaks volumes. And there's certainly many people who, like myself, who didn't feel the need to like, mm-hmm. you know, comment and like, that means whatever, you know, I think your, your words resonate most with people who just read and like stop and think about it. And, you know, just, just think, you know, you don't, not everyone has to, to speak up in every single moment. So like your voice was enough. Good. I'm very glad. Yeah. And I'm also very glad that Manji's does not have a comment section. So. Yes, that's a great thing as well. It's just, a, it's such a, like, what a time to be alive that, like, everybody gets a voice these mm, days. Truly. Yeah, yeah. 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 For, you know, the good and the bad. You take it both. Yeah. Um, I really want to thank you for coming on today and being so open. And I don't know. Um, I'm so happy you're at Munchies and we still get to read your writing and it's just it's always such an absolute pleasure and like true learning experience to 
to learn more about you and to hear your perspective. And I'm so glad that you have a place to do that and you will continue to do that. And um, where can we, where can we follow you? Tell us like how to find you on munchies and how to find you on social media. Totally. So my Twitter handle is Senator Mayuk. Um, <laughs> my name is M-A-Y-U-K-H. Um, I'm barely on Instagram, but uh, my handle is myuk.sen. Uh, my website is myuk-sen.com. Uh, and my munchies uh, author, I, I write there every day. So Perfect. you'll be able to find my byline very easily. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all for listening and tuning in this week. We'll be back next week, same time, 6.30 p.m. EST on heritageradionetwork.org. So you can check us out on the site or find us on iTunes. Just look for Food Without Borders or on Stitcher Radio. See you next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.